Good morning, all. <laughs> uh, it's a real privilege for me to be able to share God's word with you. And this morning, we have chosen our text in Luke chapter 24. And I would like to read with you the story of how Jesus meets with two travelers on the way to Emmaus. And that begins in verse 13 of Luke 24. And we will read through to uh, verse 32. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about the things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of hearts to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it's toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them, and when he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened up the scriptures? So far, our reading. <clears throat> now, I'm glad to see there are some boys and girls here, or at least girls, I'm not sure, <laughs> uh, because I need you to help me. I'm going to be asking you some questions. And... Um, 
And the first uh, question I want to ask is, have you ever seen on television uh, pictures of a bushfire where the flames are burning in the trees? Well, let me ask you then, do you think we might have a bushfire here today? Here in Mansfield, Wishart, what do you think? No, I see somebody shaking, no, why not? Well, maybe some of the adults can help us here. What do you need in order to have a bushfire? Fire? <laughs> Sorry? Fuel? What about temperature today? I'm wearing a coat. Do you think uh, likely to have a bushfire with these temperatures? Usually on the really hot days, isn't it? And then there's another thing you need, and that is wind to blow. These three things, heat, fuel, and wind are needed to have a bushfire. If one of those is missing, you're quite safe. But if all three are present, you better beware. Now, I'm not here to talk to you about bushfires, but I think it's a helpful way for us to understand what we find in our text in Luke 24, verse 32, where we read that these followers of Christ were on fire. Because there in verse 32, we, we read, they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened up the scriptures. Now, as I said, you need, first of all, heat. After the death of Jesus, you can imagine the disciples were thoroughly demoralized. They'd been hoping that he was the one who was to come, and it looked like it had all come to nothing. And that includes the two people we meet here traveling to their home in Emmaus, they were thoroughly depressed and demoralized. Uh, one of the couple here is identified as Clopas, but we think he's the same man mentioned in John uh, 19.25. Sorry, he's called Cleopas here, but in John 19.25, he's called Clopas. Now, maybe you notice that sometimes O and O-E in names are interchangeable for Simon, for example, Simon Peter is called Simeon in Acts 15. The O becomes an E-O. And we think the same is happening here, that Cleopas is therefore the same one as Clopas, who is identified in John 19 as the husband of Mary, who was at the cross. Now, I put it to you that the two people traveling here were Cleopas and his wife Mary. I don't know if you've seen Sunday school stories about this, but usually it shows two men traveling together, doesn't it? But why? Uh, they were living in the same house. Isn't it more likely they were a husband and a wife? So let's take it that it was Cleopas and his wife Mary who were here. Uh, they knew about Jesus, but we are told that they were kept from recognizing him here. They don't know who he is as he joins them on the way. And it's clear that this is a deliberate act of God. And we may speculate why. 
I think the reason is, uh, first of all, that God wants to make it clear to us that this was not a matter of mistaken identity. Now, I don't know about you, but I've sometimes thought that I saw somebody, and then when I look more closely, it isn't them. But especially when you're looking for somebody, you think you see them, but it's a case of mistaken identity. And that's not, certainly not happening here. And so it eliminates any idea that we are here talking about visions or some kind of mass hysteria about Christ coming back, a case of a mistaken identity. No, very clearly, they recognize Christ in what he says and what he does. And we will see how that goes on as we look at the story. We find that Jesus then joins them as they were discussing, of course, what had happened that weekend. What else would you talk about in a situation like that? And you can imagine Mary and Cleopas talking, but what about this? But what do you think happened when, when the tomb was empty? And why do you think, uh, did he die on the cross? And so on. And clearly you can imagine uh, there's a lot of questions there. And so as Jesus joins them and asks them what they are talking about, they tell them about the Messiah, whom they, well, the man they hoped was the Messiah, dying on the cross, being entombed, but then finding the tomb empty after three days. And then all of a sudden it appears that the stranger is actually much more knowledgeable than they are about what's happening. He explains it all, and our text says that their hearts were burning when he spoke to them. See, the presence of Jesus was like a heat that set their hearts on fire. And I think this is why, <coughs> sadly, so many Christians are not on fire for Christ and for the kingdom and for the gospel. The reason is that they have removed themselves from the heat that you need to burn. Now, boys and girls, I said I had another question for you. Any of you ever sat around a campfire? And if you have, you probably reached down and picked up a stick out of the campfire. Have you ever done that? Well, what happens to that stick? What happens to the fire? Will it keep burning? No. It goes out. It's burning while it's with all the other sticks in the campfire, but you pull it out, and very soon it stops burning. Well, that is an example of what happens when you remove the burning thing from a source of heat. As long as the heat is there, it'll burn. But take it away from the heat, and it dies out. And that's exactly what happens with people who remove themselves from the presence of Christ. Because where do we meet Christ? Christ says, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. And I want to warn you people that if you do not make it a regular practice to meet with other Christians, your family around the table, maybe a Bible study during the week, and certainly the worship service on Sunday, if you remove yourself from that, you will 
you will miss out on the heat and your flame will die out. I think one of the reasons why Christ uh, sends out missionaries two by two is exactly for that reason, that they can encourage each other, that they can meet together so Christ can be with them. And on the mission field, we did the same. Uh, we were sent to, uh, as pioneers to a mission field where there were no Christians for, for miles around. In fact, nobody's even heard of Christ in that area. But we had each other, and we could uh, meet together. And as soon as other mission families joined us, um, we would meet together once a week to, to have that fellowship and to feel that heat when Christ is in the presence of us. Sadly, I know of one case where a missionary, a young man, went out by himself, went into the bush, um, got accepted by a village, and all of a sudden nobody had heard of him anymore. He had gone naked. He forgot about the gospel. He would lost all heat. Friends, we should never knowingly separate ourselves from fellowship with other Christians. It's interesting, when you read that story of Richard Wormbrandt, and some of you older people will remember, he was a pastor, was at East Germany or one of those places behind the Iron Curtain, and uh, he was put in solitary confinement. So he had no opportunity to meet with any Christians year after year. But you know what he says? He says, it was at this time that Christ himself would come into the cell with me and embrace me. And that's what kept him going. It's so important for our Christian life that we have that fellowship with other Christians to, to heat each other, to enthuse each other. So let's not neglect on meeting here in church, at Bible studies, prayer circles, in our family circles, and so on. Now, as I mentioned, there's a second thing you need, and that is fuel. And if you look at our text, it's not hard to see what constitutes the fuel here. It is the Word of God. Christ opened the Scriptures to them. It says he went from Moses to Malachi, so from uh, Moses to the prophets. And of course, Malachi is the last prophet, and Moses wrote the book of Genesis. So we're talking here about the whole Old Testament. That's how the, the Jews used to speak of the Old Testament, Moses and the prophets. And, uh, well, there's, of course, a wealth of material in there because the whole Old Testament is pointing to Christ. Now, we don't know what text he might have picked out. Maybe he picked out Genesis 3.15, where we have that promise that the woman will bear a seed who will crush Satan, the serpent. Maybe he went to Genesis 12, verse 3, where we have that wonderful promise that out of uh, Abram's offspring, there will be one who will bring the nations together. Maybe he went to Genesis 49, 10, where we read that a ruler would be born in Judah who would rule the world. 
Maybe he also went to the books of Leviticus to talk about the offerings of lambs and so on, to show how he had come as an offering to give himself to God, how his blood would atone for the nations. Maybe he too went to some of the Psalms, like the Messianic Psalms, Psalms like Psalm 22 and 69, which speak of Christ's suffering and giving himself for his people. Or maybe Psalms like Psalm 2 and 110 and 118, where we read of Christ who would become king over the nations. And no doubt he went to some prophets. I imagine he went to the book of Isaiah where we have the servant songs, like Isaiah 53, which speaks so clearly of how Christ would come and suffer and give his life for his people. Maybe he went to the prophecies of Daniel about the coming of the Son of Man. Maybe he went to the books of Jeremiah and Zechariah, which speak of a branch coming out of the stump of Jesse, one of David's uh, offspring who would rule the world. We don't know uh, which text they were, but Jesus was with them for at least three hours on their journey, and you can say a lot of things in three hours. But what is clear is that for Cleopatra and Mary, suddenly everything fell into place. And I wonder if you've ever had an experience like that, where you're trying to understand something that somehow doesn't want to click, and all of a sudden, maybe you learn something new, maybe you see something, all of a sudden, it just comes together like that. Some of the uh, detective series you see on television uh, have this kind of thing where, uh, (coughs) well, for example, Death in Paradise, the detective there has all this information, but it just doesn't want to come to an answer. And all of a sudden, he sees something, and it all comes together like one big picture. That's what it is. And he knows the answer. And... uh, I wonder uh, if you've had that experience. Well, it certainly was happening here to Cleopas and Mary. They had all this information about uh, the Old Testament, what they'd learned, and then all the events that had taken place, and it just was all jumbled up. And it wasn't until Jesus talked to them that all of a sudden, bang, it fell into place. I was at a uh, rest house in Nigeria one time, and we had an American volunteer uh, staying next to us in the unit. And uh, he told me he'd uh, been in in the country for a few uh, months to uh, wire up a lot of buildings. He was an electrician. And so he wired up schools and houses and so on. And uh, he was retired. He'd been an electrician all of his life. Anyway, uh, later that evening, uh, as we were in our unit and he was next to us, we suddenly hear, wow! We thought, what has happened there? And uh, I said to him next morning, you got a bit excited last night, didn't you? He said, yes. You know what happened? He said, I've been an electrician all my life, and I picked up a little book from the shelf, and it was a children's book, How Electricity Works. 
and it taught me about electrons that move and, and about positive and negative charge. And he said, all of a sudden, I understood what I've been doing all my life. He didn't know the electrical theory. He knew a red wire goes through a red wire, a black wire goes through a black wire, and the green wire goes through the green wire. And he knew how to connect it all together, but he didn't have any idea of what was really happening until he read this children's book, and it all came together. Well, that was the kind of experience that Mary and Cleopas had here, when all of a sudden it all began to make a wonderful sense. It all fit together. All their questions were answered. Friends, I cannot overestimate how important it is that you study the Word of God that you get that understanding. And at the moment, we can be helped by some wonderful uh, stuff on YouTube and, and television uh, that helps us understand the story of creation, that helps us understand the story of the flood, uh, archaeological uh, programs that help you understand how things worked in Israel and uh, where we suddenly discover, oh, so that is the meaning of that story because we suddenly re uh, find something new that puts it all into place. And that's why it's so important that we study the Word of God. And I want to ask you, how often do you study the Word of God? Is it weekly on Sunday? Is it perhaps twice weekly, Sunday, and a Bible study? Hey, let me ask you, how often do you eat? How many of you eat once or twice a week? Anyone? How many of you eat only once a day? Most of us eat at least twice a day, I think, and many of us three times with a lot of snacks in between. You know that the Bible speaks about the Word of God being the bread of life. That is our spiritual food. If you want to be healthy, you eat several times a day. And it's the same as spiritual health. If you want to be a healthy Christian, you go to that Word of God. We all know what happens when people don't eat enough. We have a name for it. It's called anorexia. And maybe you've seen pictures of anorexic people. I've seen them, and sadly, soon after, you usually find out that the person has died because you need food. And if you don't have that food, you become anorexic. Well, I do wonder how many anorexic Christians are there in God's family, people who don't have the food they need to be healthy, to be alive. And that study of the Word of God is so important but needs another element, and that's the third element here in our story, a bushfire near air or wind. Oh, the interesting thing is that the word for air and wind in both Hebrew and Greek is the same word as the word spirit. We need the spirit, the Holy Spirit, who blows on whom he wills, as we read in John 3, 8. Now, the Holy Spirit had not yet come on the church as such. That was going to happen 50 days later. But 
I think we should think here of the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had descended on Christ at his baptism. You remember that in the Jordan, how it came on him like a dove. And Jesus, of course, dispensed uh, his, uh, did his miracles in the power uh, of himself, but also of his spirit. And, and the same night that he meets with uh, uh, Mary and Cleopas, he also breathes or blows on the apostles and said, receive the Spirit. That was to help them through the next 50 days until the Spirit would come down on the church as a whole. And the reason why I think we must think here of the Holy Spirit is because we read in verse 31 that their, then their eyes were opened. Now, I'm not sure if that means they were born again or whether they were converted. Uh, but what I do know is this is an expression that is used when the Holy Spirit clarifies the word of God. We see it uh, in other believers. We see it in a wonderful way in, in the Apostle Paul, for example, who had his eyes opened not only spiritually but physically after he became uh, blind. Well, their eyes were opened when they saw Jesus praying. Sorry, they heard him pray and saw him break the bread. And it was then that all of a sudden things clicked because they had heard and seen that before. I imagine that Cleopas and Mary were present at at least one of those occasions where Jesus uh, fed the 5,000 or the 4,000. And they would have seen him do that. Or if they hadn't been there, then certainly on that weekend, the apostles would have told them how Christ broke the bread and gave it to them and said, do this in remembrance of me, the first Lord's Supper. It's then when Christ breaks the bread that they become aware of who he is. And this breaking of the bread becomes suddenly immensely meaningful because it throws everything into perspective. Now, we have opportunity occasionally to break the bread. We call it the Lord's Supper. And it's a time when we remember what Christ has done to us, when the word and deed and the sacrament uh, come together in the sacrament of Lord's Supper the promise and the fact. Now in that story, there's something else that I think Luke is alluding to here that could escape us. Remember, at the beginning of creation, there was another couple who ate bread, who ate food. And you know what happened when they ate that food, that forbidden fruit? Their eyes were opened to their sinfulness and nakedness. That's right at the beginning of the Bible. Now here at the beginning of the New Testament, we have another couple who eat and their eyes are opened to the answer to their sinfulness. Christ himself is the answer to sin. Notice how this opening of the eyes is not their own doing that. Uh -huh. No, 
It's something that happens to them. Their eyes were opened. It is the Holy Spirit who opens the eyes. It's the Holy Spirit who brings them to faith here. And of course, it's God, the Holy Spirit, who can uh, do that to all of us and make our hearts burn when he opens our eyes to the wonderful treasures of the gospel. When we seek the presence of Christ and when we listen to his word, the Holy Spirit can, can quicken us and set us alight. While this is a work of the Spirit, I do not want you to think that you're wholly passive in this. That you can kind of sit back and say, I hope it will happen to me one day, uh, that the Holy Spirit will come on me. No, because in the passage that Peter uh, read to us earlier, we find this verse um, in, uh, where Paul says to Timothy, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. You see, Timothy's not to sit back and say, let it happen to me. No, he's to work on it and fan it into flame. And I'm sure you've all done that sometime, maybe a campfire and that flame is nearly dying and you get something and wave and you see the flame growing. Well, that's what we're told to do here. Fan into flame that, that little spark there in our lives. And how do you do that? Well, Paul goes on to tell Timothy, what you heard from me keep as the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in you. You see it? Here is the heat. The heat is the faith and love in Christ, his presence. Here is the fuel. What you've heard from me, the pattern of sound teaching, the good deposit that was entrusted to you. And here is the wind, the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. Friends, it's my prayer that you will be fanned into flame as you meditate on the word of God, as you come together with Christ's people to, to experience this, this heat and as the Holy Spirit blows on you to make you burn for Christ. Amen. Let us pray. Our Lord God and our Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ and for the fellowship that we can have in him, even this morning. And we thank you, Lord, for your word. Let us there is the fuel to help us um, to burn for Christ as the Holy Spirit blows upon us. Father, it's our experience that that will ha happen to us here that we may experience that in our heart and that we may continue to burn as we go out uh, into society and to our homes. Lord, we pray that you will bless us uh, to experience this wonderful event of being set on fire for Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.